Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Power Reclamation Show, where we explore the mysteries, heartbreaks, and resiliency of the human experience. Together, we'll focus on rewilding ourselves through raising consciousness and dismantling domestication. This is a collective journey of challenging hierarchical systems of power over, as well as our own personal conditioning and limiting belief systems. This show is about embodying the power of love, presence, and our own inner authority. Hello, and welcome back to the Power Reclamation Show. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Marone. In these first two shows, my intention is to lay the basic groundwork for my power reclamation system. During the first show, I shared about my incredibly inspiring experience interviewing close to 20 people about their relationship to power. We explored questions such as, what exactly is power? How do we know when we have it? And what about when we've lost it? We explored two polarized forms of wielding power that hold very different energies and intentions. One is power over and the other power with. And lastly, we explored the question, why does discussing power matter now more than ever? I also shared a little bit about why I've created the power reclamation system. Most of us have never had an easy roadmap to reclaim and integrate our lost power. Yet we know in our hearts that in order to become the force we were born to become, we need to call all of ourselves back home. The Power Reclamation System is a dynamic, nonlinear discovery process designed to help us welcome exiled parts back home into the wholeness of our being. It's a journey of hunting and tracking for areas in which we have unconsciously lost our power, thwarted our powerful life force into reinforcing patterns of disempowerment or even power over. Exploring power means looking at the polarized expressions, which means we need to investigate old and outdated forms of fear-based power, such as domination, manipulation, and personal agenda pushing. These do not create an authentic leader. These forms of power create the floundering systems that we're now attempting to dismantle. In today's show, we'll focus on the six distinct powers that encompass the wheel of integrated power and my power reclamation system. Each power serves as an entry point to illuminate our individual gifts and our superpowers as well as our personal conditioning and any banished aspects of ourselves that eagerly await our acceptance and our fierce love. Now let's look at the six powers at a high level. As you listen, notice which powers grab your attention and which ones potentially trigger you. This show is meant to be a journey for you to self-reflect as you listen and digest the stories. So just sit back and notice what arises in you. In future shows, we'll go into each power in much more depth through storytelling and interviews with others who are walking the path of conscious leadership. We'll explore the phenomenon of why we fall on our swords as a means to gain our power back and why we make choices to give our power away because often in that moment, we value something even more such as being loved, praised, connected, or to feel our sense of belonging. So let's begin. Let's start with the first power, centering power. Are you easily thrown off center when someone or something forces a change in your plans? 
Or when you need to make a decision, do you get stressed or even paralyzed? Or do you attack internally, blaming yourself or externally blaming others when someone gives you feedback or criticism? If so, you may want to cultivate more centering power. Learning to deepen into this power will help you feel alert, present, and confident when you're becoming reactive. What is centering power? Well, in short, it's the ability to sustain a calm and grounded presence, even in times of uncertainty, complexity, and change. You know those moments when you blow up and say or do something that you regret later? Or when you withdraw, sulk, and become distracted by resentment and judgment? These moments are reactivity in action. This kind of reactivity is in our mammalian nature. It's not our fault, but we do have more power with conscious awareness of how we want to operate when those arise. We are wired to protect ourselves against perceived threats, often by attacking or withdrawing to create a sense of safety and control. Yet, we also have the power to interrupt this pattern and course correct by calling on our centering power. Cultivating our inner witness is one of the most essential allies to bolstering this power. And each time we neutrally observe our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, we make space to consciously choose rather than react from habituated scripts and beliefs. Strengthening our centering power doesn't mean we'll feel centered 100% of the time. It means we'll be more able to recognize when we're off-center and have tools and practices and disciplines in place to call ourselves back home into a grounded and connected way of engaging. Viktor Frankl, the author of the book Man's Search for Meaning, shares his wisdom gained by living in a concentration camp during the Holocaust. And he says this, Between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. Reclaiming any power begins with self-awareness and personal responsibility. This means that the journey begins by noticing when we're in our centering power and when we're not. When we're in our centering power, we most likely feel capable of navigating complexity and chaos without exploding or collapsing. We might feel receptive to others' needs while asserting healthy boundaries. Also, being in centering power gives us a quality of flexibility and adaptability when plans change. And it also provides a sense of groundedness in our vision, leadership, and the values that we stand for. On the other hand, when we're out of rhythm with our centering power, we might notice ourselves blaming, withdrawing, or attacking through guilt trips or criticism when we feel vulnerable or when we feel out of control. We might notice that we collapse into patterns of shame, self-doubt, or self-aggression when we make mistakes or when we disappoint others. And lastly, another area that we might notice being out of centering power is when we start to feel paralyzed or overwhelmed by decision-making. Here's an example of centering power in action. A few months ago, during a power reclamation interview, I had the privilege of watching a woman move from dysregulation directly into her centering power. 
When she began to speak about her sick dog, she entered a state of panic, overwhelm, and fear. And within 15 minutes, she shifted into complete trust, love, and acceptance. I mean, it really blew my mind. So right before my eyes, she reclaimed her centering power. And here's what happened. In tears, she shared about her grief and her guilt. Recently, she discovered her dog had a tumor, and she feared that she wouldn't be able to afford the extensive treatments required to treat the condition. Yet she didn't have all the medical recommendations or the treatment costs yet. Basically, she was hijacked by what-ifs, which all of us know something about. You know, what if, what if, what if this happens, or what if that happens? And in her overwhelm and in her guilt, she said, How can I not afford to take care of this creature who is my family? I feel like such a bad person. So we slowed down and I asked her to go into her body and notice what was she feeling? We explored the tightening in her chest and other intense sensations. And after tracing her somatic experiences, she began to appear less and less overwhelmed by her emotions. And within 10 minutes, in a quiet voice, With her eyes still closed, she said to me, I can't know until I'm at the vet tomorrow. I don't have enough information and worrying about what I don't know is not going to help me be calm and present. When I have more data, I'll know what to do for both of us. And after she said this, she started to describe a warmth and a heat rise up in her body. She described it as an orgasm without the waves And with it brought a deep sense of relaxation. So we lingered here for a while. And eventually I asked, have you been through something like this before with another pet? And she began to recount her previous dog's transition and how it was so clear what to do and when. And not through logic and reason, but in the moment through her heart. Calling upon this moment gave her the courage and trust in her capacity to listen and to know right action. Then, as we began to wrap up our time together, she said, I don't want to navigate this through fear, so I think it would serve me to have some kind of mindfulness practice to support me when I feel guilty or when shame or panic arise. So here's what I want to do when I get triggered. I'm going to ask myself, what would love do right now? We sat together in silence with tears in our eyes. It was not a mental affirmation that she crafted to soothe herself. And as she spoke, I felt a full body vibration of love warm and fill my whole being. She had tapped into the essence of something so much greater than fear. She opened the portal to love itself. This is centering power. Initially, she fell off center through fear and guilt And then she turned towards her body sensations to help move the emotions and energy. And from here, something naturally opened into, I don't have enough information yet, which means there's nothing I can do until I see the doctor tomorrow. And after she unplugged from the fueling thoughts of worry and fear and powerlessness, a natural emergence of love appeared in her heart, becoming her internal guide and her resource. From here, she recalled how she had navigated the death of her other dog from a place of calm inner trust and faith in her capacity to make a difficult decision with her heart and not her mind. So let's move on to the next power, relational power. 
Do you ever find yourself trying to please others or conforming to their expectations rather than being true to your own needs? Or do you feel as if you need to continually earn love rather than feel intrinsically lovable? Or do you struggle to feel seen, heard, and connected in relationships? If so, strengthening your relational power might support you to gain the confidence to bring your undefended self to relationships and to deepen your experience of safety, trust, and connection with others. What is relational power? Well, in simple terms, it's the art of consciously engaging in loving, transparent, and co-creative relationships. And that's with ourselves, with each other, and with all of life. Relationships are a gateway. They will reveal our creative capacity to love, and they'll also reveal our reactive impulse to protect. And all of us need connection and belonging, and we also need freedom and autonomy. So how do we live and thrive with such complex competing needs on a daily basis? Well, we explore our relationship to emotional intimacy, vulnerability, adaptive strategies, and our attachment styles. What we learn as children about how to navigate relationships will manifest in our adult relationship dynamics, often without our conscious awareness. And it may seem counterintuitive to turn towards our pain as a teacher, especially when our primal instinct is to move away or get rid of the pain by blaming someone else or collapsing into feeling victimized. Yet I've found through studying my most painful relationship patterns that I've been able to access the underworld of my psyche and my beliefs. And this has assisted me in reclaiming exiled aspects of myself that I have abandoned, rejected, and have been heartbroken and lost. Sometimes I can do this on my own, but in truth, because much of the trauma occurred in relationship, most of the time I need a safe and loving presence to help me to repair and reintegrate these lost parts of myself, I need that container of loving and non-judgmental relationship. And I've experienced profound healing and transformation through relationships based on the values of practicing vulnerability, transparency, and taking personal ownership for our own conditioning in relationship with each other. Together, we can bolster our relational power by exchanging feedback especially when one of us is operating from limiting beliefs or strategies based on fear, control, or scarcity. We share about impact, listen, and have empathy and care. And in all honesty, sometimes this can be incredibly messy and really difficult, especially when we're both triggered. But we stay in the game. And even when it requires a lot of pauses, or sometimes expanded time and space to digest and cool down. We also celebrate and express appreciation for one another's remarkable capacity to love and practice radical acceptance for our differences and for our mammalian messiness. To some aspects of myself, this level of exposure has been terrifying. Why? Because approaching relationships with this level of self-honesty and ownership has required me to open my heart when I'm defended, to drop my armor when I want to fight or I want to run, 
and to reveal my vulnerability that I have carefully protected through my adaptive strategies and my defensive posturing. We have the power to interrupt what no longer serves us and to make conscious relationship choices that fulfill, heal, and uplift us into our greatest level of growth and intimacy. And together, we can fortify this relational power by creating a container of safety, trust, and love, both within ourselves and with trusted allies. I want to share a story of a woman who did just this for herself. This summer, during a power reclamation interview, one woman shared a story about how she lost and years later reclaimed her power in her 14-year marriage. Here's what she said. I wanted to have my needs validated and honored by my husband, but he often dismissed them. I wanted to bond through more sexual intimacy and emotional depth. Yet each time I asserted my needs, my husband would scoff at me or criticize my desires. Eventually, I felt powerless and disconnected from him and myself. The way I reclaimed my power was by facing the grief and disappointment that he didn't want the kind of relationship that I wanted. And when I saw the reality of this and I stopped trying to change him or contort myself, I was released from the story that my needs are too much. They only appeared to be too much because he didn't want the same things that I wanted. And he didn't know how to communicate this with me in a vulnerable and open-hearted way about what was true for him. Instead, he criticized me. So over time, it became clear to me that he didn't have the capacity to hear or meet my needs. Instead of listening and empathizing with me, he took things personally and then blamed me by saying, nothing is ever good enough for you, which of course would often cause me to collapse into self-doubt and shame. Later, during a therapy session, I realized there is nothing wrong with me and there's nothing wrong with him. I mean, I wasn't asking for too much. I was simply stating what I wanted. And because he didn't know how to meet me in my desires, he protected himself by making me wrong. Instead of being with his own vulnerability and feelings of inadequacy, he blamed me. And once I realized this, I got how love speaks. It says no one has to be at fault. And this allowed me to soften into the realization that my needs, not only were they not too much, but they were welcome and they were welcomed by me. And this was a huge relief and healing for me. One of the reasons I love that story is because it's filled with such vulnerability and self-ownership and devoid of blame and shame. She reclaimed her power by changing her mindset and accepting their differences without blaming him or herself. And so now she can build a life with a new partner that will be more compatible with both her basic human needs and her hunger to evolve and grow with someone who wants the same thing. Now let's look at self-acceptance power. Are you your own worst critic? Is it easy for you to find fault with yourself and hard for you to feel self-acceptance or self-compassion and self-love? Do you long to be seen yet also find yourself wanting to hide (laughs) or even run away from someone who really wants to see you? 
Do you find yourself spiraling through painful repeating circumstances and you don't know how to interrupt the cycle? If so, maybe it's time to dive deeper to the root of this repetition compulsion to illuminate the lessons you're trying to teach yourself. These are just a few examples of what it looks like when we're out of rhythm with our self-acceptance power. Learning to embrace our personal conditioning and heal trauma will help us to create more self-love and compassion towards ourselves and each other. It will also support shifting from compartmentalization into a more integrated way of living, loving, and embracing the complexity of life. So what is self-acceptance power? It's the power to compassionately and courageously befriend and integrate exiled parts of ourselves home into the wholeness of our being. One of the ways that I describe self-acceptance power is the ability to notice when we're operating from fear and scarcity rather than love and acceptance. Let's face it, we all know how easy it is to slip into fear and control, especially if we're being moved by unresolved trauma or aspects of our personal conditioning that seek to protect our vulnerability and keep us safe at any cost. It's not our fault. We're all conditioned. And simply by living on the planet at this time, most of us are traumatized in some way. We are messy human beings with layers of conditioning, trauma, and self-protection. And as we embody our self-acceptance power, we align with our compassionate inner witness, the one who observes, welcomes, and integrates these so-called messy parts of ourselves back home. Befriending our self-acceptance means welcoming parts of ourselves that we judge, hide, and ultimately areas that we don't accept ourselves. This is how we build this muscle. The process of hunting for our lost, fearful, conditioned, and traumatized parts becomes an adventure filled with heartbreak and liberation. Each time we bravely walk into the dark and examine how we freeze when we feel shame or judge and criticize ourselves or others, when we feel fear of being inadequate, too much, or not enough, we are welcoming these disowned aspects back home, back into the presence of our loving awareness. So reclaiming our self-acceptance power is a journey of noticing. When do we dissociate? When do we disembody as a result of emotional, physical, or psychological threats? It's about healing through self-study of our own protective mechanisms how we relate to shame, self-aggression, self-aggrandizing, and self-doubt. The journey of self-acceptance and self-love grows through building a compassionate relationship with our conditioned human experience. And the heroic journey of retrieving these banished aspects of ourselves is a form of alchemizing our wounds into our gifts. Because each time we retrieve some aspect of ourselves, it's a hard-won wisdom that becomes part of what we bring to the world. And as a result, we naturally radiate love to others through the power of our own presence. In other words, our inner container of self-acceptance and curiosity actually become a beacon for those still traveling in the dark. What do you notice when you're in the presence of someone who holds this kind of open space you know, that feeling of being seen and held, even if they don't say a word, the sense of not being judged for any part of you, that all of you is actually welcome. 
What is that like for you? I imagine if you're like me, in those exchanges, you feel safe because a part of you knows that all of you is welcome and that they're able to freely offer this gift because they themselves are on a journey of welcoming all of themselves home. This is the embodiment of self-acceptance power. The famous quote by the Buddha around self-acceptance suggests this. He said, you yourself, as much as anyone in the entire universe, deserve your love and your affection. And here's how Brene Brown describes self-acceptance. I now see how owning our story and loving ourselves through that process is the bravest thing that we'll ever do. So what's it look like when we're in our self-acceptance power? What do we feel? I notice for me, I get curious about the repetitive patterns and the limiting beliefs that seem to be responsible for my suffering and my loss of energy. I also find that there's an increasing awareness of my own personal conditioning and the adaptive strategies that I draw upon to protect myself. And also there's a connection to how trauma informs the way that each of us vigilantly seek safety or engage through limiting beliefs that reinforce some kind of mistrust in life. What about when you're out of rhythm with your self-acceptance power? What might you feel? Maybe you notice that when things go poorly, that you actually think it's your fault or that you're being punished. Maybe instead of feeling that this complexity and these obstacles are part of your awakening and your evolution, you feel helpless and powerless within the face of them. Another way might be when you notice that you're being defensive or unable to receive feedback, whether it's about your blind spots or a negative impact that your choices and behavior are having on others, regardless of your intention. Another might show up as an unawareness of your strategies to attempt controlling others in order to maintain your own sense of power, safety, or even to protect your own vulnerability. And one more way that you might notice when you're out of rhythm with this self-acceptance power is when you feel an urge to gossip or maybe even in a passive-aggressive, sarcastic way you humiliate another or maybe you dehumanize them as a way to bond and feel important. Self-acceptance can be a challenging power to reclaim. I think this is true because the shattering of self-acceptance is often caused by unresolved trauma, which may be from our own biological trauma, such as experiencing reinforcing misunderstandings about our own lovability and our own value that stem from our personal conditioning. But it also can be a result of invisible markers caused by our ancestral trauma or even cultural trauma. Ultimately, anything that makes us question our own lovability, our own worthiness, and our own sense of belonging is some form of trauma that's interfering with our embodiment of self-love and self-acceptance. This power can also be fragmented and shattered through being the recipient of other people's disowned pain and self-hatred 
that becomes directed at us through criticism, judgment, shaming, blaming, gossip, and guilt tripping. Here's a story of how I've been exploring how to reclaim my self-acceptance in the face of a lifelong traumatic cycle of being the scapegoat in community. My whole life, I've been projected upon through gossip and fabricated stories. Since I was in elementary school, I have encountered bullying, a deflective tactic of dehumanizing someone else in order to manage one's disowned jealousy, self-hatred, and feelings of inadequacy. Being bullied and projected upon poured salt in the wound of my already fragile sense of not belonging or feeling that my existence mattered. As a little girl, I was a threat and I didn't understand why. All I wanted was to feel my sense of belonging. All I wanted was to feel safe, loved, and accepted for who I was. But for whatever reason, my presence and my way of being caused people to feel jealous and threatened by me. It broke my heart. It made me separate. It pushed me to the side. And on a daily basis, I was confronted by false accusations and gossip. My life swung between two extremes. On the one hand of the equation, I was being elevated and placed upon a pedestal. And on the other, someone was trying to knock me down with gossips and rumors. From elementary school through high school, I tried on two strategies. One was hiding through being quiet and attempting to blend in. And the other was through people pleasing. Neither tactic ultimately was able to mitigate these attacks. It happened frequently from such an early age that I quickly established a narrative, a belief system that this must be all my fault. I felt broken. I was convinced that I must be the cause of such abusive behavior. I must be the cause of this. I often thought, well, maybe if I'm nice enough or if I look hard enough at my faults, this painful experience of being exiled will stop. But it never did. And despite my personal evolution and my dedication to healing the trauma of being the scapegoat, it does still occur. The early trauma of being the scapegoat lives in my system as a massive threat. And each time it arises, I have to work with myself to stay grounded and to remember who I really am. This past summer, I experienced the painful ripple effects of gossip and criticism about my personal character through a rumor mill started by three people, only one of which I know personally. When a friend delivered the news about the false accusations, I collapsed into the eight-year-old girl inside of me. This part of me felt shamed, shunned, and afraid to be seen in public. I know the stories about me, at least the ones that I heard through the rumor, were not true. And yet they activated this old trauma of feeling ostracized and misrepresented with no one standing up for me. And despite my healing journey, when I'm in this trauma response, I feel powerless, I feel helpless, I feel alone, I feel marked, and I feel unworthy. And of course, my higher self, the part of me that exists when I'm not triggered, well, that part of me knows that I'm worthy. But the history of how this trauma has imprinted my psyche still lives within me. And when I'm threatened, it takes me on a ride. So... How am I reclaiming my self-acceptance power in the midst of another round of this? 
Well, I began by asking one person I knew, who was part of the extended group, to encourage each person to reach out to me. I thought this would give them a chance to share their concerns and check their assumptions and the stories they were making up. But no one did. And I didn't know the people, so I chose not to. I chose not to address it head on. But what's different was it felt to me like it's more an inside job than an outside job for me to be free from this. What's different now from childhood is that I don't need to please people. I actually need to be myself. And so what I'm doing is I'm learning how to discern between what is actually mine to take responsibility for and what are the symptoms of other people projecting their own jealousy, their own fears, and their own unworthiness onto me. I'm learning that I don't have to feel powerless when others disown their pain and make it about me. I also have tools to interrupt my automatic impulse to blame myself when others refuse to take responsibility and check their assumptions and stories about me. It's still murky in these moments of attack, but my self-acceptance power is growing and it's starting to include the understanding and the pain of the whole system every single one of us that keeps reinforcing the violence of projecting our disowned hatred externally. My own empowerment expands when I'm able to compassionately understand the bigger picture. The bigger picture meaning we as humans, we often feel like we're not enough or we often feel like we're too much. And when that pain hits, we might turn towards gossiping or making other people wrong when we feel insecure. It's a way that humans bond. It's a strange satisfaction that happens around making other people less than so that we don't feel so bad about ourselves. It's one of those universal and strange human addictions. And our self-acceptance power asks us to cut through these impulsive instincts. And many of us have learned to watch this impulse arise, to gossip or make someone wrong and we can consciously choose to refrain and redirect our energy, especially if we're taking ownership for the feelings that are underneath it all. This is radical self-responsibility and a transformation from scarcity, comparison, and fear into love. I am reclaiming my self-acceptance power moment to moment, and I feel more in this power when I refrain from becoming small in order to avoid being a threat to others. And instead, when I have the courage to stand in the fire of opposition and criticism with my heart held by me and by love itself. My self-acceptance power is bolstered by my willingness to come out of hiding and take my own hand as I walk through the hallways of criticism and of being misunderstood. I've learned to shift from my automatic collapse of oh no, something's wrong with me, to a two-step process. The first is investigating if there is a reflection in the criticism or the gossip that is medicine for me to see one of my blind spots. And secondly, if the accusers are unwilling to approach me directly, then I've done all I can at an interpersonal level. I am committed to keep sitting in with my little girl who fears being outcast and exiled. I let this part of me feel held as I accept that without direct engagement and vulnerable conversations, 
the attacks are likely more about the other person than they are about me. The next power is called wild power. Have you experienced yourself suffocating in the stale air built by a life that you no longer feel inspired or alive in? Or maybe it feels like your life belongs to other people or your to-do list more than it belongs to you. Or do you stay in stagnant or toxic situations out of a sense of duty or fear? Maybe you find yourself clinging to safe and known because the fear of uncertainty is far too paralyzing. Maybe you're living at this razor's edge, compelled to courageously follow the roar of your wild heart, but you hesitate for fear of what might have to fall apart or what might die or change if you say yes and you leap. When we reclaim our wild power, we will find ourselves more confident and devoted to live from a deep sense of vision and purpose for our lives, rather than remaining inside the cage of domestication, scarcity, or fear. Okay, so what exactly is wild power? It's a devotion to the passionate roar within us that dismantles social domestication in order to claim an authentic, free, and sovereign self. You know that wobbly feeling when you realize that your innocent attempts to become who you think you should be have actually resulted in feeling a loss of freedom, passion, and joyful engagement? To be free is to expose the superhuman compulsion of striving to become who we think we should be rather than being and doing what makes our heart sing. And let's face it, this is no easy task to feel and follow our passions when we live in a world of increasing financial, social, and personal pressure. For conscious leaders and heart revolutionaries, the deeper question of wild power is, what do you value the most? And what is the legacy of your life and your presence on the planet? To embody our wild power is to expose and challenge any idealization that suggests we'll be happy if we follow a particular script, especially when that prescriptive formula is not aligned with our heart and soul. When we tap into our wild power, we trust our inner authority over cultural idealizations and over social pressures. Instead of chasing happiness externally, we turn inward and we partner with our true nature. And as a result, we begin to root into our expanded sovereign self. And this is where divine wisdom becomes more present and influential than our personality and our personal agendas. Reclaiming wild power is a gritty and liberating journey of dismantling domestication. This means revealing all the ways that we've been lulled into a slumber of compliance. Perhaps we've abdicated our wild power in order to maintain a particular self-image, such as being a loyal caretaker, which is driven by a fear-based belief that if we assert our needs instead of taking care of other people, we will be abandoned or we'll lose connection. Or maybe we strive for achievements and success because this is how we maintain status and this is how we reinforce our sense of worthiness. Or maybe we're identified with being a people pleaser to ensure that we're loved and that we belong. And as we liberate ourselves from reinforcing our own repression, we gain access to a different way of holding our power 
with others through dynamics of power with rather than power over. One of my favorite songs about domestication and wild power is by the activist, singer, and songwriter Bob Marley. One line says this, Emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. So when we're in our wild power, we most likely feel a gentle roar deep inside of us that keeps us focused on self-care and energy management. Another way we might notice feeling in our wild power is when we're in touch with our sense of personal authority over cultural and social expectations, or when we feel free to embody the fullness of who we are with or without the approval of others. And another way that wild power can show up is when we are conveying an aliveness and a passionate purpose and we feel on track with our authentic life's path. When we're out of rhythm with our wild power, we might notice feeling reliant on recognition and success based on external measures over our own sense of authentic fulfillment. Or we may feel caught in the superhuman compulsion of striving, accumulating, and consuming. Another way that wild power can feel far from our own reach is when we're relying on others' opinions over our own sense of clarity, truth, and desire. And one last is when we're unable to see how our personal conditioning makes us vulnerable to patterns of approval-seeking, compliance, or attempts to control others. What are the keys to reclaiming our wild power? You know, that place where we own our inner authority, we feel our sovereignty, and we're in touch with our authentic life. Well, we begin by exploring how has social and cultural conditioning silently domesticated us? We live in a world that exalts doing, busyness, and consumerism. A world that perceives slowing down and resting as lazy or a waste of time. This cultural reinforced false equation of rest equals laziness is a primary cause of shame, self-betrayal, and internalized fears of, am I enough? The insidious shame associated with honoring our need to rest is what drives addictions to striving, busyness, and consumerism. The result? We innocently burn ourselves out and step on our wild power. What if we could create a world where we together tell one another, hey, it's okay to rest and you can take care of yourself? Yes, of course you're tired. Of course you're tired of feeling punished when you need and want to rest. What kind of world would come from this level of compassion and permission giving? What is the antidote to heal how our wild power has been domesticated through feeling shame about resting and selfishness when we seek self-care or nourishment? I believe that it begins by personally and collectively engaging in an honest conversation about how we each reinforce our own domestication through this striving, busyness, and punishing ourselves when we need to rest. Shame grows in silence. It causes feelings of aloneness and brokenness. 
And the natural response to managing this kind of intensity is typically to isolate or to escape through addictions or compartmentalizing our lives into small, tiny boxes. And if you're like me, when shames takes hold, I quickly identify with a limiting belief that, oof, I'm broken and something's wrong with me. The self-aggression and betrayal is how shame controls us. Each time we expose feeling silently seduced or overpowered by critical voices, that's when we illuminate the shadow of shame and bring it into the light. When we find safe people that we can share our shame with, it starts to break down. Collectively, we can remove the shackles of shame and create a new paradigm of wild power by sharing our vulnerability and holding one another with empathy. One entry point into exploring wild power is through examining how and why we become more interested in pursuing what looks good on paper over listening to our inner authority and our heartfelt inspirations. So what do I mean by on paper? Well, you know, those checklists with carefully curated boxes that indicate how we will earn our esteemed merits of success, as well as what to avoid and criticize in order to keep ourselves in the lane of these prescribed idealizations. Instead, we check the boxes so that we can avoid some sense of failing. This is how we unconsciously order off the menu of our lives each day to ensure success and minimize failure. We are in the throes of domestication and loss of our wild power when we measure our lives by what looks good on paper versus what feels right in our hearts. And each time we compare ourselves to this checklist of, well, I guess I think my life should look like X or I should be able to do Y in order to be successful or even, but I need to prove my worth, my lovability and my social status. And this is the only way I know how to do it. Each time we expose one of these shoulds, we are allowing ourselves a window into where we can liberate ourselves. We ultimately relinquish our wild power each time we fervently pursue the prescribed idealizations of who we think we should be at the expense of taking ownership for what we authentically want to be. And to look within in an earnest examination, whether we have become lost in the pursuit of chasing recognition externally, rather than resting more deeply within our own inner authority and sovereignty, is a pretty big journey. And that's why we need each other. I mean, let's look at it in a really practical sense. How many times have you said yes to an esteemed job, a romantic relationship, or pursued an activity because it scores more points on your checklist of success? Then as time passes and the honeymoon wears off, do you predictably find yourself passionless, drained, irritated, or maybe even collapsing into addictions to manage your lack of engagement and aliveness? I can't count how many times I've done this in every area of my life. I've taken a few jobs that seemed good for my resume, but they were a dead end for my heart and they drained my life force. I've befriended people who fit something on my checklist only to find a painful mismatch when I come to terms with my fantasy of who I wanted them to be. 
I've also tracked this pattern through pursuing my hope and my fantasy of joining certain communities that checked off the boxes on my list, yet the experience resulted in feeling suffocated and isolated because the individuals in the group were more interested in reinforcing the shadow of the group dynamics through denial and avoidance rather than exposing, owning, and embracing them in order for us to heal together. One trap that clips the wings of our wild power is remaining unaware of how our conditioning and our beliefs keep us imprisoned. A key signature of identifying lost power is to reveal the way our lives are dictated and run by a series of I should. Most of the time, the I shoulds remain buried in our belief systems. This makes them tricky to identify until we have some kind of breakdown, a tragic loss, maybe we encounter a betrayal or even rejection. Or for some of us, we may, through our own suffering, proactively create space in our lives in order to study our mind through therapy, coaching, meditation, or other healing modalities. As I study all the ways I have innocently reinforced my own domestication, it usually comes down to two things. The first is simply my lack of awareness. And the second, my blind spots about the ways that I defend and protect my beliefs, even at the cost of my own freedom. Reclaiming our lost power, it means compassionately waking up to how we operate in unconscious, undefended ways where we live by shoulds rather than our heart's desire. Well, what are the ways that we each attempt to uphold our idealized sense of self? And how do we defend against change to protect our need for safety and control? Well, when I'm radically honest, most of the times, the idealizations that I've been mindlessly chasing actually don't align with my deeper heart's desires. In fact, Pursuing these prescribed checklists is often an unconscious attempt for me to keep myself safe and hidden from criticism, judgment, or fear of being exiled if I walk to the beat of my own drum. I can never fully claim my wild power until I expand my self-awareness through studying and taking ownership for how I innocently reinforce my own domestication. I have to ask myself over and over again, okay, how am I betraying myself with my own conditioning and my own limiting beliefs? Without sharpening my sword of self-awareness, I do remain blind, blind to how I reinforce the limitations of how social and cultural conditioning has created my worldview. And until I see and extend compassion to this part of my human conditioning, my freedom will remain a shimmering mirage, a forceful seduction that induces me into a trance of chasing, striving, and hoping that some external achievement or some external recognition will finally open my cage to feeling freedom. But ultimately, at the end of the day, freedom comes from within, not from something we achieve externally. So, the first key to dismantling domestication and reclaiming our wild power is through expanding our self-awareness and our self-compassion towards how we've been conditioned. The second 
is to use these two superpowers to track and study how we unconsciously defend, reinforce, and protect the esteemed shoulds that drive our fear and anxiety. For example, a dear friend of mine is in an unhappy and loveless marriage. He's decided to stay married and not address his feelings until his two children have completed school and left home. Meanwhile, he is miserable. He and his wife consistently fight. They don't express affection towards one another, and they haven't touched, kissed, or had sex in years. They're cohabitating, raising their children, and sharing resources. But at the heart of the matter, they have lost connection, passion, and the love is completely snuffed out. He believed that his children didn't feel the lingering animosity and resentment between he and his wife. Until one day, his teenager daughter said to him, I won't be angry if you two get a divorce. In fact, she said this repeatedly to both he and his wife three times over that weekend. And each time, he and his wife swiftly swept their daughter's subtle plea and invitation to talk about the elephant in the room straight under the rug. My friend and his wife don't want to address the issue head on. Each of them have created something that works. It's good enough. A cage of rusty metal bars that keep them safe from the fears of, but what if? And they also keep them protected from the blue skies of a wide open world that awaits them if they would become willing to climb out of their self-imposed cages. Sometimes rocking the boat is scarier than deadening ourselves and numbing out to survive the pain and suffering of the known. Sometimes claiming our true desire means risking the reality that we will temporarily be flung into the unknown and be navigating a lot of fear. But let's face it, no matter how evolved we are, being dropped into the desert with more questions than answers, it definitely will activate our primal fear body. But to be wild is to be willing to be honest and to reclaim what's most true in our hearts. And it's complex because sometimes perceived safety keeps many of us in toxic relationships and situations because leaping into the unknown, it's a paralyzing consideration. It's a strange but very common phenomenon that we, because we are wired for threat and safety, this often translates into clinging, clinging to what is known and familiar because the uncertainty of navigating loss and change is far more scary and threatening than suffocating in our own prison. So my friend justifies his own imprisonment and powerlessness through bargaining, rationalizing, enduring. This isn't uncommon. I know this place in myself. He's too afraid to feel and study the deeper patterns and beliefs that he holds about his role as a father, his duty to be the caretaker, his agreement to be the responsible breadwinner, and his fear that his wife will turn the kids against him as a way to offload her fear, her vulnerability, and her pain. He hasn't yet connected the dots that if he could face his fears and look under the hood at his limiting beliefs, he would find the keys to unlocking his own cage and discovering his own liberation. Wild power is often repressed because in order to release ourselves back into the wild, 
we must be willing to stare down the barrel of our own human need to cling to what's familiar, even when it might be rotting. The pursuit of our happiness and our freedom is founded upon our capacity to notice when are we clinging to toxic normality rather than challenging the status quo. In my experience, it's common to remain trapped by our perceived helplessness and need to be in control until we can expose our personal fear traps. This includes embracing the excuse-making, the bargaining, and the limiting beliefs. You know, those walls that come up when we feel trapped by thoughts such as, but I should, or, but it's my responsibility, or, but they need me, or, if I do what I want, I'm going to end up alone. We must befriend how we remain victimized and helpless by these thoughts. When we're driven by fear and shame, it's almost impossible to hear our inner authority, our heart's desire, and our wild roar. So to become wild again is to journey through the gauntlet of identifying one by one which sources of domestication, shame, and shoulds are running our lives. Which beliefs are darkening the inner temple of light, courage, self-trust, and the passion of our deepest heart's desires. So let's look at the next power, intuitive power. Do you find it hard to trust your inner knowing or even arguing against your heart's desire with your rational mind? Or is it hard for you to live with uncertainty, to wait, to listen, instead of forcing movement? Or do you often try to control things in your life rather than trusting and letting go? If so, you may be out of rhythm with your intuitive power, and cultivating this power will help each of us access new doorways of knowing, reading energy, tracking unspoken cues, and making more life-affirming choices. Well, what exactly is intuitive power? It's the ability to listen, surrender to the flow, and cultivate a connection to our whole being wisdom. And this includes the intelligences of our mind, our heart, our emotions, our body sensations, and gut feelings. Intuitive power helps us to gain insights, guidance, and information that is often beyond what our conceptual mind can access with our logic and reason. It requires a depth of listening. And this art of listening doesn't just occur through our intellect. We access our intuitive power through cultivating a relationship with our whole being wisdom. Well, what exactly is our whole being wisdom? There are reservoirs of sophisticated intelligences that live within each one of us. As I mentioned earlier, these include our cognitive thinking, body sensations, our emotional intelligence, heart guidance, gut feelings, and information that just unexpectedly arises from a nonlinear inner knowing. Some might call this our sixth sense. When we have intuitive power, we wield a sharpened sword of clarity and inner knowing. And as we navigate uncertainty, our intuitive guidance becomes a beacon of light in the fog of disorientation, self-doubt, and confusion. And when we're wielding this power, 
we devote ourselves to the art of receiving and listening. When we doubt our insights, especially if they seem illogical, we get quiet, we stop doing, and we listen for inner guidance. That's intuitive power. Have you ever experienced yourself struggling to make a decision or solve a dilemma? And maybe in one moment, your mind tells you one thing, and then in another, your heart guides you to do something different? It can be really complex to harness our intuitive power, especially since fear speaks through us with such conviction and influence. Yet, have you experienced the grace of creating some space from problem solving and having some miraculous thing occur? Like in that space, you're no longer hyper-focused on trying to force clarity. And then, without thought or distress, a lightning bolt of insight just hits you. It's like an arrow. That's a sign of intuitive power. Albert Einstein talks about intuitive mind this way. The intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind is a faithful servant. And I think that's really true in terms of my own journey of embracing and embodying my intuitive power has required me to really become suspect of the ways that I dismiss subtle cues that don't make logical sense. So when we're in our intuitive power, we might feel the value of building a relationship with all these different intelligences. We might get curious about our body sensation, or we might value our emotional intelligence as a marker to give us information about something that's happening. Another way that we feel in our intuitive power is when we're willing to drop our personal agenda and sense the flow, the flow of the energy, what direction things are going, and we might even be more interested in what's serving the whole rather than our personal agenda. Another way is when we're connected to the energies of our feminine power, and this is regardless of our gender orientation. And some of those feminine powers are just the ability to listen, to receive, to be in the flow, and to wait for right action, a quality of patience. And one more that I think is important to name about intuitive power and when we're really in it is when we're devoted to surrendering and apprenticing into the unknown, which means noticing the anxiety induced attempts to fix, solve, and make things go away so that we don't have to feel the fear of unknown. When we're out of rhythm with our intuitive power, we might struggle being quiet or slowing down, resting, and practicing patience. We might discount the wisdom of our own emotions or our gut feelings. We might become consumed by anxiety-driven busyness which makes it more difficult to sense, feel, and recognize our intuitive power. Or we might try to excessively control our lives to the extent that it thwarts our ability to experience the magic and the mystery that comes when we surrender into the unknown. Here's one way I repress my own intuitive and emotional intelligence to keep my job and avoid further pushback. Years ago, during my corporate career in Chicago as a business analyst, I was expected to maintain the status quo 
by ascribing to the unspoken rules of prioritizing masculine attributes of logic, analysis, and ever-increasing productivity over more feminine principles of emotional well-being and the human dignity of the employees. In this corporate culture, it was all about the bottom line. And while I value logic and reason, I equally value leveraging my intuition and my heart to problem-solve strategic and management issues. Yet, when I drew upon the intuitive powers of empathy, curiosity, spacious listening, and attuning to the needs of the whole, I was instantly dismissed. And when I contributed ideas from my holistic approach, I was quickly given an eye roll by the rest of the team or a condescending and dismissive message that I was being too soft or irrational. One disconnected executive would laughingly spit out the words, they're lucky to have a paycheck. We're not here to make them happy. We need their blood, sweat, and tears. I was horrified by his lack of empathy. These executives were primarily focused on presenting the right numbers on their spreadsheets to maintain power, status, and title. Meanwhile, I watched hundreds of employees work overtime to meet unreasonable goals, causing burnout, health challenges, and emotional strife. The employees' work stress often cracked the foundations of their marriages and their home life. I tried to assert my vision, but as a 30-year-old female, I didn't have much weight. I was devoted to leading from a system of wholeness. And initially, I pushed back against the executive team's swift band-aid approaches, which diminished employee morale and trust. But their dominating tactics increased fear-based scarcity, gossip, passive-aggressive reactivity, and unhealthy competition, and they did not want to hear this. These leaders didn't seem to realize that treating their employees like indentured servants would backfire, and eventually it would require more time and resources down the road to repair. I offered recommendations that would serve everyone, but I was repeatedly redirected to focus on the outcome that would satisfy one particular executive's personal will instead of the whole. I felt crushed. And after numerous rejections of my strategy, I learned that my intuitive power was not welcome. And because I needed a job to survive, I temporarily tucked these powers into the background until I felt like I was literally dying inside. And as time went by, going to work felt like living in a prison cell with my mouth taped shut, my hands tied behind my back. Eventually, I made a radical life decision and I left my corporate life behind to start my own consulting and coaching business. That's a little bit about intuitive power. The final power that I want to cover today of the six powers is called erotic power. Do you think of yourself as not a creative person or do you find that your inner critic blocks you from your creativity? Do you feel out of touch with your sense of passion and purpose in life? Or maybe you struggle with feeling that your erotic desire is too high, too low, or somehow it's unreliable. Maybe you find yourself preoccupied with daily responsibilities and that makes you feel disconnected from your own creativity or your own sexual expression. 
If so, you may be out of touch with your erotic power, and learning to access this power will help you activate states of flow, joy, and aliveness, both alone and with others. So what exactly is erotic power? It's the capacity to intentionally direct our life force and our creative energy towards states of union, joy, innovation, and pleasure. Erotic power is a mysterious and provocative expression of creativity, desire, and love. Erotic is actually derived from the Greek word eros, the personification of love in all its aspects. Yet, in our capitalistic and consumer-driven culture, erotic intelligence has often been defined as sex and pornography. Yet eroticism has much more breadth and depth than this narrow translation. When you feel states of flow, playfulness, creative energy, innovation, or a sense of union with your life, you're in touch with your erotic power. Accessing erotic power requires us to be in our bodies, present to the inner landscape of our direct experience, our senses, and our somatic intelligence. In return, it gives us a quality of aliveness that will nourish us and everyone around us. The seat of our erotic power is our ability to intentionally direct this life force and the creative energy towards what we desire and what we feel enlivened by. Think of those moments when you have felt connected to the pleasure of emerging with someone you love or the joy experienced when you're immersed in a creative project that's so engaging you can hardly tear yourself away. These states of flow, sexual union, and creative expression are signatures of erotic power. So when we're in our erotic power, we might feel a sense of devotion to fanning the flames of our passion, our vision, and our creative self. We might take responsibility for the power of our life force in ways that wield an expression of love to soothe fear and anxiety. We might find that we're interested in creating sexual exchanges that involve consent through power with, rather than self-serving acts of power over. And also when we're in erotic power, we understand and study our sexual fantasies to heal missing experiences through intimacy. On the other hand, when we're out of rhythm with our erotic power, we might mistaken our cravings as passionate desire, which may cause us to indulge in ways that create disconnection or shame. We may become hyper-focused on sexual performance and lose contact with the sex magic that emerges when agendas are dropped. We may believe that erotic power is only accessible through sex with another person, which truncates our ability to self-generate our creative energy. Or we may withhold our sexual desire for fear of being too much or push it towards others for fear of unworthiness and a need to validate ourselves. I want to share a few erotic power stories. One is through embracing one's passion and creative purpose, and the other is about embodiment and sexual healing. I'll begin with the story on passion and purpose, illustrated beautifully by a courageous corporate client of mine. This client was busy studying for the Certified Financial Planner exam to become a financial advisor. And when he talked about it, it sounded like he was enduring a chore. I felt little passion and creativity coming from him. 
So of course I inquired. With curiosity and reflections, we started talking about what he was passionate about. And I will never forget that day. Tears were streaming down my face as he expounded on his recent heartbreak around the racism in our country. He recounted a recent experience in which his mom was called a nigger on Facebook. He was so angry and afraid, and he felt helpless to protect her. Racism had become a pain point for him. Born in Washington, D.C. and raised by first-generation immigrants from Jamaica, he was infused by the inclusivity of his ancestral culture and found that racism in the States to be contradictory to his internal sense of connection and inclusion. I learned from him that Jamaica's motto is, out of many, one people, which partly stems from the variety of people of different nationalities that have migrated to Jamaica. His grandmother had Chinese parents who migrated to Jamaica before she was born. She looked Chinese, but she sounded 100% Jamaican, he said. I thought to myself, isn't this what the melting pot really is about? Merging back into oneness and away from separation because of differences in race, color, class, or sexual orientation, or any box for that matter. I really resonated with his pain. We designed homework for him to write about his experience and feelings. And in our next session, he arrived like a star aflame, speaking poetically about his passion for educating and facilitating discussions around diversity and inclusion. He acknowledged that the career path of a financial advisor was not actually his heart's desire. It took tremendous courage to be this real with himself. And I felt so moved. I know it takes a lot of inner strength to say no to something that you've geared the last number of years of your life towards. But eventually, he said yes to his vision, his vision of a career where he could raise awareness about racism and diversity. He canceled his financial planning exam, enrolled in graduate school, and followed what turned him on, rather than holding on to his old safe plan. He had found an erotic spark and let it carry him into clarity one step at a time. And the other example I want to share is about embodiment and sexual healing. One of my clients was first introduced to porn when he was 12 years old. And as an adult in his 30s, he was not able to ejaculate or feel connected when he was with a woman. He was unable to access the pleasure of her touch or feel a deeper connection to himself or her through his body sensations. And without the visual stimulation of porn, he felt lost when he was with his lovers. So I referred him to a sexological body worker, a colleague of mine, who took him on a journey, a journey of learning to slow down and feel his body. For months, she guided him towards noticing the sensations of his skin, the feelings in his heart, and the power of his growing ability to be present with her and with himself. She taught him how to slow down. And through this journey of helping him to re-inhabit his body, she gave him homework to notice smells, tastes, and sounds in his daily life. And as she encouraged him, to allow his emotions to rise, which allowed years of grief and shame to be witnessed and welcomed, something continually started to open. 
in a way, he started to thaw out. And over time, he experienced an awakening of heat and aliveness rising in his body in unexpected ways, such as when he was in nature, at work with his creative team, and in bed with his girlfriend. His journey of reclaiming his erotic power was expedited by dropping into the fullness of his body, his emotions, and his sensations. And through his devoted practices, he sparked a world of creative expression at work that he never experienced before. And he felt more intimacy and love than he imagined possible. So that's it. A brief introduction to the six powers that encompass the power reclamation system. Here they are again. The first is centering power. Second is relational power. Third, self-acceptance power. Fourth, wild power. The fifth, intuitive power. And the sixth is erotic power. Stay tuned for future conversations, storytelling, and explorations as I dive in with guests about their personal journey of learning to reclaim lost parts of their own power and wisdom. And if you have an inspiring story of your own power reclamation, please email me and tell me more about it. I hope you enjoyed the show today. If you want more, you can subscribe to this channel. This will automatically queue up the next episode for your listening. If you have a burning question or topic you want to learn more about, please send an email to Ask Anne Marie. The direct link is located in the show notes. And please leave a review. This keeps me inspired and focused to bring you more. If you want to learn more about my work as a power reclamation guide, leadership coach, and organizational culture consultant, you can visit my websites in the notes. Thank you again for joining today.